So finally, we are kicking off today our uh, teaching through 2 Timothy. We'll be through all through the winter and spring and right up to when summer starts. So uh, looking forward to that. I think it, I read that it was around in the 18th, uh, 1800s, 18th century actually, not 1700s, that um, Timothy, this particular epistle, um, uh, the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, were written by Paul to other pastors and they took the name Pastoral Epistles um, um, a couple of centuries ago. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy. And uh, one thing, just by way of setup before we dive in, would be this, is that you might think, wow, well, this is a preacher uh, sharing with a preacher. And so um, what does that mean for me? He's, a, he's actually an apostle, and he's a clergy, and he's sharing with a guy who's been appointed as a pastor, and so how would there be anything for me? This would be mostly for pastors. I will say personally that Second um, Timothy has been First Timothy that has been a sweet book for me over my life, and uh, for that reason, as I've gone to it. But um, let me remind you of this: that first and foremost, that context, in a sense, when we think about the context of who wrote things and why they wrote them. Um, context always uh, helps us um, understand things better, but it never. Uh, reroutes or diminishes the application in a sense, if that be uh, maybe an understanding for it. That, that um, if that were the case, that this would be only for pastors to read, then we technically couldn't read, maybe you couldn't read Ephesians because that was written to the church at Ephesians and that didn't really apply. Or maybe we couldn't read the Bible because the Bible was written for ancient times and to a different people in a culture and it can't be brought forward. So context illuminates and helps us understand, not illuminates, but it actually helps us understand more deeply the truths that are there but it's not always a direct uh, idea that eliminates that we can't get applications. And by the way, uh, we are a royal priesthood, and all of us are called to be, in a sense, a role of representations of the gospel to God's people. So there are some unique things that him them being a pastor to pastor that will surface, that come out. But over, overall, it's still one of the most, uh, it's still nevertheless powerful, and I hope you'll hear as we look at some of the reasons why, why this is a great book for us in our time and place as we are in the church. So our outline this morning is that we'll, we will look at uh, these, uh, Paul and Timothy, we'll answer two questions, who were they, and then what did they need? Who were they, and what did they need? And they say, well, how do you get that from those first two intro verses? But it really gives a trajectory of answering those questions. So we'll learn a little bit about who they were and their context and what was going on. And then what did they, what did Paul begin with, really flowing what he knew he needed, because they're kind of the same bolt with a lot of difficult things going on and what he's going to give, uh, give to Timothy. So let's pray for that. God, would you help us to um, see uh, from Timothy, would you over these next weeks, as Chris and I and, and Kevin begin to just teach and preach from this, Father, I pray that you would be with us and may your word uh, be like honey of the honeycomb to your people. Would you let it, um, in the studies, would you compound the benefit for us as we study it in our studies and individuals and groups, as we as pastors look and study it, as we preach it, would you let us uh, be transformed? And would you truly, God, speak to our minds and help us to learn? Would you speak to our souls and let us be comforted and, and even encouraged or convicted, but make our hearts moldable to your word and may it pierce through it. And then also teach us, God, that the Word of God does stand forever. Amen. 
All right, well, we'll first look at just who were they. We'll talk about the two characters here. This is Paul writing to Timothy, all right? And so Paul was an um, apostle. We'll look at that in just a second. But he has um, one of the primary authors of the New, New Testament. Paul was a Pharisee who had been converted on the road to Damascus, all right? So he is an apostle. And um, let me just tell you his background in two words. So he was clergy before he encounters Jesus. So he's grown up around the church as a Jew of Jews. He's clergy and a murderer. He was actually murdering Christians while he was still a Pharisee before his conversions. Now, I do a lot of counseling, pastorally and helping people, and I got to say that's not one I've had to help. Can you imagine being a Christian and your background was you're a performance junkie, zealot for your faith, thought God loved you according to the deeds of the law, denied uh, thought Jesus was a, um, uh, a crazy person or an enemy of God. That's what, what your teaching was. Opposed Jesus, anyone who was with him, and then you actually carried that out and murdered. So you'd be maybe a life sentence in today's culture. That's a lot. He's a human being. So you can imagine what's going on in him. Always remember that. He's fallen. He was a sinner. He's broken. He's a man. Um, and at this point in his life, where he is right now, he's at the end of his ministry, he's in prison in Rome, all right? So he is writing from a prison to Timothy, and uh, death is imminent. Later, you'll see in chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, he even says, uh, I've been poured out, I've fought the good fight. He knows, he's pretty sure that his death is right around the corner. So that's what he's speaking of. As a matter of fact, the way 2 Timothy is kind of written, the genre of it, when you begin to study it, it's the same as a lot of other farewell discourses. I don't know why I waved at you, but farewell. <laughs> but a farewell discourse, all right, to say your last word in Testament. It's uh, happened, it would, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, he'd won it, it has the shame, same shape as that. Joshua did it in Joshua. 23 and 24, David in 1 Chronicles, remember when he built, after he built the temple, 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, he had it. And then Jesus, the famous, which we, teach, we taught on uh, three or four years ago in the discourse of the upper room, was Jesus was in his last days and last moments with the disciples. The wording, the style is someone who is saying farewell, who knows his death is right around the corner. And listen, what would your life be like if you knew your death, when you knew when death was coming, it was right around the corner? What do you begin to do? I think that you probably look for the people you love and think about the things that are most important to you. That's been my pattern of people that I've been around. I think that's what I, I hope that's what I would do. So that's where he's coming from. And by the way, I've been reading it over and over. I took two or three weeks, uh, three or four weeks ago. I've been reading it over and over. And I'm, I've been so struck by Paul knowing the difficulty of what he's been through in other epistles. He lists out, you know, he'd been scourged, shipwrecked. I mean, he, he's been through so much. There's no whining in this epistle for the difficulty. Now, he's honest. Even when we read this epistle, he's very honest. He says about, talks about guys. He says, Alexander the coppersmith, he's against me. Demas has forfeited me. So-and-so sick. I'm so worried about him. I mean, he's a real guy who's struggling. He's going through a lot. And yet, you know where he lands? I, I, all, as I've read it this, in the past uh, three or four weeks and thinking about it, I keep thinking he's about to go over the edge, and he never does. Now, I'm not saying you can't be weak and lament, but I'm speaking to the whining and the, and the um, maybe like the elder brother or the younger brother who's, I want my inheritance and I want, things are hard, whatever it might be. But I didn't see it, haven't seen it in him. But at the end of your life, 
what would you say? That's Paul. Timothy is younger. We know that he's younger. Uh, you may remember in the first or second letter, he says, don't let anyone look down on you in your youth. So he's a younger guy. Um, and his age is a little bit hard to determine what we think it is, but it would be younger. My, my, I think of him in his 30s or something like that. Um, and uh, he probably came to faith in Lystra when Paul was in his missionary journey there uh, and had a, a lot of persecution as he and Barnabas were preaching. He probably comes to faith there. Um, but he's, he's a frail guy. Notice when you begin to read this passage, read it, that Paul's always talking about timidity and, and um, needing power. So don't think of, uh, in Timothy, when you think of him, don't think of quarterback of the football team and Mr. Popular walking in who thinks like he can own the world and Mr. Showoff. Think about a guy who's pretty timid, not very confident. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 23, you remember Paul tells him to drink, some people drink some wine. Some theologians think it's because he was just so anxious and timid and he needed something to settle his stomach. As a matter of fact, in verse 4 of the first chapter, Paul says, I've heard of your crying. He's sad. Whatever he's facing as a leader and in his particular role, in life, which happens to be a pastor. My guess is you've wept over a lot of things that you've been called to do. He's weeping. And um, he was assigned to oversee multiple churches. He's in Ephesus, okay? We could go on about them. But together, let me just tell you a little bit about them together. Um, Timothy had been with Paul multiple years of his journey and been to different places, to Corinth and you may remember that when Paul was in Ephesus, he actually said, I send Timothy to you to, and send good news back to me. Take care of him. I mean, Paul, Timothy and him have been all over uh, Asia Minor and the world at that point uh, together on journeys, proclaiming the gospel and all these difficulties. They, you remember Dr. Cofield when he did our marriage seminar years ago and he said how many people get married on mission trips, right? They meet their parents. <laughs> Why is that? You're on a mission trip. You go through something hard. You have a common purpose and you're doing it together and not just look at each other, but something unites you as you go through something difficulty. Uh, go through a difficulty together or, or something very important. I mean, they've been laboring beside each other for a long time. He's a young brother in the faith. But I sense Paul, as he's studying this, is like, we're just my dear friend. Remember, he's, he's about to die. I'm going to write to someone who really matters to me. And so they've been very, very, very good, good friends. And Paul, they've been together a whole lot. And Paul refers to him as Timothy, our brother, Timothy, a servant of Christ Jesus in Philippians and Colossians, Paul and Timothy, servants of those. He, he always refers to him as a dear brother. And here we're going to look, he calls him his child, my dear child. So that's who they are. And uh, a couple of things that they're going through uh, together. What's just kind of the state of where they are at this point? Um, there's a lot of uh, suffering, and it comes out of 2 Timothy. They're really, it's a really difficult time. As a matter of fact, the, the, Nero is in rule right now. Actually, the exact time that this is being written and uh, during the Neronian rule, uh, Nero, the emperor of Rome, um, he's one of the worst murderers and executors of Christians in all of history. And so the church is being executed. Remember, Rome is burning. Nero sets it on fire. He actually blames the Christians for that. They have a scapegoat. But 
It doesn't take long to say, how did Nero, you can Google anything and find out how Nero uh, treated Christians. But his extreme punishment, I'll give you one thought, on the Christians was perhaps one of the most nefarious displays of cruelty. He held parties in his gardens while the Christians' punishment served as an entertainment. He covered Christians with skins of beasts and then allowed wild dogs to sick them and torn up by dogs and perish. And they were nailed to crosses and were doomed to flames and burnt and to serve as nightly illumination to the city of Rome. He hated them. And then on top of that, you'll notice in our, as we get into it that Paul actually is saying that many of my brothers have left me. There's been a mass exodus of Christians, a mass exodus of Christians from the church who had been around the church. And so the church feels like a minority. They're alone in this, in this call to be in a church. And so, I mean, that's a People deconstructing their faith. Do you know how many children now hate the church that have grown up in the church? I mean, there's a similar feeling to that. And the persecution, although we're not being burned, churches, if you're over 50, you grew up uh, living in, a, in, a, in America thinking where the majority of people had a deistic view and a positive view of Christianity. If you're 40 below, you've never known Christianity to be a majority. It's always been a minority, and it's becoming more and more worse. Which, by the way, that's part of the reason we don't know how to relate to each other above 50 and uh, below 40. Massively different experience in our country when it comes to Christianity. So that's what's going on. Arguments and quarreling. Uh, false teacher. He's having difficulty with friends. I mean, they're abandoning him, left them uh, within just difficulty. Lots of things going on. They're needing endurance. And some of the themes, as you'll see him just offer to Timothy the word. You need this living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to sustain you and, and train a man in righteousness. I mean, the word becomes a theme in 2 Timothy. The gospel and power, those are themes. And even addressing false teaching. So that's where they are. That's who they are. So what did they need? Where did Paul start with what they needed? And we'll go to the passage here and look at it. And... Um, Two things I think that they needed and Paul kind of, and and what I'm saying they needed, because I think Paul is speaking from the very thing he knows he's learning and he needs, and he's speaking that to young Timothy. Does that make sense? So they both need this. (laughs) And guess what? You and I both need this, no matter where we are in life, whether under Neronian rule or in uh, today, we need what they needed. And I think those two things are, um, and he'll add to it, but it flows from these two needs. One is that you and I need a clear identity, and we need a benediction from brothers. A clear identity and a benediction from others. Now, let me just tell you, what do I, what do I mean by identity before I look right at the passage? Um, I must admit that I have been really shaped by Tim Keller on the idea of identity what it is. I think he's one within our denomination that has framed it. So whatever I'm about to say probably is influenced by him or Ed Welch or somebody, okay? I look back over my old notes around that. But um, identity, when we think about what is our identity and what does it mean to have an identity, some would say it has to do with your idea of self, who you you think you are, yourself, and your worth. But I'll give you three questions over, over time that I've kind of come to summarize. And have heard others summarize, is that in order, what does it mean to have an identity? Who is, what is your identity? Uh, what is your value? What, what do you understand yourself to be, and where's your worth found? That's what identity deals with. Here's the three questions. To what do I aspire? Do I aspire? So that would be, you have to answer that question. 
I mean, you got to live for something. What is it you're aspiring for? All right, that, that's one part to help you understand your identity. Secondly, what am I worth? Where's my value found is maybe a better way to say it. So what do I aspire to? You've got to live for something. You've got to do something. So what does it find? What do you do? What am I worth? And um, what I mean by that is that once you figure out what you're going to aspire to, then your worth is usually uh, how you measure yourself along to what you're aspiring to. Does that make sense? So I measure myself how I'm achieving what I value. Does that make sense? So your worth is measuring yourself, whether you're doing well or not, according to what you aspire to. And then lastly, who gets to say? Who has a say in what, how good it is and where it comes from? So your identity can answer the, and meaning just who's the person who gets to decide or evaluate you whether or not you're doing well with it. So again, let me repeat those. What do you aspire to? What am I worth? And who gets to say? Those three questions, you answer those three questions, you're kind of figuring out what your identity is. All right? And let me give you an example, a couple. So let's say a young person aspires to make great grades. All right? That's what I want to be. I want to make great grades. I want to measure myself. That's what I want to go after. Then, so then your worth is found, and you figure out how valuable you are, how much you're worth based on how well you're doing with your grades. You're not doing good. You're not doing. Then you don't think you're. You don't have much worth because I'm not as smart as I think I ought to be, or I'm not accomplishing what I should. And who tells you that? Who gets the right to tell you that? What well, right now would be the education system, or maybe your parents. They get to say this is what good and bad is, and so your identity is around how smart you are or how good your grades are. All right. Maybe you. Another way you could. Another example would be. Um, Maybe what you aspire to is to be a great parent. It's a noble thing. All these things are noble. But it's a problem when it becomes your identity. All right? But I aspire to be a great parent. So I measure my worth by how my parenting is going. And then who do I give, who has the say in that, whether I'm doing well or not? Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your children. Whew, don't listen to them. Or maybe you should. I'm actually learning I should more listen to them about how my parenting is going. And uh, maybe it's our, maybe you've heard that from some teacher or just you made up, you know, someone, that I want to make sure that they think I'm a good parent. Maybe you, your goal is to be a successful Christian businessman. And so you aspire to that in your business or your trade. And um, so how do you measure that? Well, your worth is about how well you think you're doing according to being this Christian businessman, whether you define it by money or success, or the growth of your company, and who do you give say to say that? It could be your investors, it could be anybody. Who gets to evaluate you according to that? I think you can see where that, so let me just say, and then as we, traditional, traditionally people have thought about identity working from the outside in. And that would be even probably most cultures prior to us. They think something out there, I need to, a truth is out there I want to aspire to, and I work inwardly to try to kind of go after it. And um, that's one way. That's traditionally been it. That's not where we are in our culture in the West. What our culture says is that you work from the inside out. That you figure out your desires and who you are and what, and from there you figure out what you want to aspire to, 
and you tell, and then figure out who you want to tell you're doing good. It works from the inside out. And so the outside-in traditional form, the value becomes self-denial. I'm going to live for my country, and therefore I'm going to, uh, or my family, I'm going to live for my family, and therefore I'm, my identity is who they tell me I am and within my family from the outside-in, and so therefore I will live up to those standards, and how they tell me I'm doing is, is how I think I'm doing, and that's how we define it. Or, um, and, and so the goal is kind of self-denial. But from the inside out, uh, the value of those who arrive from their identity inside out is self-assertion. I'm going to figure out what my desires are, and then I'm going to go out and tell everybody what those are, and if they have to make changes in light of what I desire, and then if you don't validate me, I'm mad at you. So we just assert it. Both identity arrivals from the outside in or the inside out are not good. And they destroy. And um, But now we're looking at the passage. It really is to finish there. I hope this is a setup for a very simple application and truth. Look what happens in verse 1. Paul begins everything and reminds himself and Paul of his identity. Now, listen, they're good friends. Remember we told you how close they are? Why in the world would he start out with all this official language? This is a letter to Timothy. Some think it's because they know it'll be circulated. But the other part of it is I think as well, and some would say it's because Paul's remembering who he is because he's struggling to help his brother who's struggling. So he remembers who he is and gives him his identity. And so notice what he, what he does. And so he shares and flows from that. And Paul is saying, this is who I am, and you're fruit of that, and this is who you are as well. I think that's what he's conveying. I'm an apostle by the will of God, and God put me in this position, and guess what? Timothy, he's put you where you are, and he's doing the same thing to you. And this is who we are, my young son in the faith. So look what he does. He aspires. What does he aspire to? Well, he says, he said, notice, he says, Paul, an apostle. And so his, what, is he, what is he being called to do? What is his work to do? To be an apostle. And then notice it says, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what that, what that means is, when you read that according, first when I read it, I thought it was like, this is how I became an apostle. But actually, the way the Greek reads and the way this thing is really thinking is that it's an outward idea. I am an apostle according to this mission. To be a part of the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ, that that's what I'm about. And so that's what he aspires to because that's who he is. And so he aspires to be according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's what he's doing with Timothy. I'm reminding you of this life that you and I are called to. Now, listen, you can fill in the blank for whatever apostle, whether businessman, teacher, mother, whatever roles you have given. But in the end, in a sense, it's according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And you could add other things to your role. Theirs was uniquely that of, a, of an apostle and a clergy. But do you see that they have an aspire to something? But then notice, but where is his worth found? Unlike every other identity in the world, our identities are found by how we achieve. And we measure ourselves from that. But notice, their identity is not, his identity is not built on anything he's achieved. His identity is built on something he's received from God. And where do you get that? He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
How did I get this position and how did I get this calling? Not of anything in me. It was not achieved. I received it. And whether, whether you know it or not, here at our particular church, we believe in the doctrine of election. And that's okay if you don't believe that. You may not know that we believe that. But we believe that really 100% that God himself is the one, most of our members do, is the one who does the saving and you have nothing to do with it. And when you're in a... When you're in a really, really difficult situation like they are, and you and I are taking the bumps and bruises of life, what you and I need is not some identity we've made up with from inside, from our emotions and what we think and what we hope and what we desire. What you and I need is we need an identity that we didn't participate in, but that a sovereign God with all power and and mercy gave to us and deposited upon us and sealed us with it and gave it to us. We need something that's unshakable. I don't need to be trying to figure out, did, how much did I participate? How, how committed am I to God? Did I make a decision? Did he pursue me? Was it amazing grace? How sweet the sound I was found? I, no, we, what Paul is saying is, I am what I am by the will of God. And that's how I'm anchored. Amen. That is the point. We need an identity that is received, it's not earned. And we do need one from outside of us, but we need one from outside of us from someone who's trustworthy, who's absolutely perfect and righteous in all of his ways and good and kind and has all the authority to declare who I am. If you and I are followers in Christ, we're not followers in Christ because of what we've achieved. We're followers of Christ because of what he's accomplished and given to us. Our identities are received. And so that was the last question. Who gets to say? Who gets to say? Who gets to evaluate us? God. The Father. Notice in the verse, Christ, an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. By the will of God, to the life of Christ Jesus. That's where our identity is found. And whenever, um, I wish I could go into a hundred examples of how to work that out for you. Time doesn't permit. But I pray that you and I would begin the journey. If he's going to help, if Paul, Paul is sharing, here's how I've made it through everything because I've remembered who I am. It's not anything I've achieved. It's by Christ himself and God himself. And then he gives him, to finish with clothes, he gives him a benediction. And he says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I really just think that benediction is a good word. I'm just going to give you something good. And he gives him grace, mercy, and peace, right? Most of his salutations and greetings, Paul never gave the idea. He only did grace and peace. Here he gave mercy. And he gave mercy, I think, it, because it's at the end of his life. He's like, I'm remembering mercy is what we need, too. And mercy is this. Calvin says this about this, that mercy is actually, God's mercy is the source and the fount of the grace he shows us when he set his love on us and welcomes us as the Father does his children. I think it's just powerful. Yes, our identity is in Christ, but one of the means our identity, and sometimes what we just need from each other is someone to say grace and mercy and God the Father loves you. 
Did you actually know that while we come to worship, we don't just come worship to give God glory? That's not even what our Westminster Confession believes, that you think worship services are just for, what's the worship service for? Is to give glory to God? That's actually an unbiblical statement. Ephesians tells us to sing spiritual songs and hymns to who? One another. Part of what a worship service is, is us singing to one another while we also sing to God. And he gives him a benediction to encourage him. So application as we close. Where is what you need, and whatever you're, I hope you can identify with the struggles they have, what you need is clarity on your identity, and you need a good benediction from brothers and sisters. I hope I'm giving you one today, but may we do it with each other more. So where is your identity? And um, process that. That would be a good conversation to have with each other at lunch. Where do I... Where do I think I find my identity? One of the ways you can figure that out is where you give your time, what makes you the most angry when you don't have it, where you have the most emotions. I mean, those are indicators of where your identity usually is. And, um, and Paul's going to help us with our identity crisis, how to keep our identity clear. That's part of what's going on here. But then the other thing is um, there's great power when God's people live in their identity. Most people thought at this time in history, that the gospel was about to end and the churches were about to fold and there was no way the gospel was going to go forth. The churches weren't going to make it because of the mass exodus. Mass exodus of what was going on. The commoner would have looked at it and said, Christians are about to be exterminated. One historian says, though, however, despite the attempts to villainize the Christians and sway public opinion, the punishment that was so severe and so self-aggrandizing that the public opinion swayed in the opposite direction. And there arose a feeling of compassion among the public. Christianity would flourish in Rome and eventually be the dominant religion throughout the empire. At its bleakest moment, maybe in history, one of the key leaders is about to go down, calls the people, calls another key leader, to remember who we are and gives him a good word. Let's pray. Father, as we sing to that end here, um, Lord, would you um, would you help us to be a church as a, and I'm, I'm praying this for all the churches. I'm going to specifically pray this for um, Christ's community with Travis and Josh and Emily and Tara Joe and the church there and for us as we seek to be churches that live for their, for their city, for your fame and for your glory, that you would, um, I would even confess, I feel like sometimes that Christianity is going the other way in this, in this culture. And the feelings of maybe being exterminated or maybe being such uh, trivialized or under attack. So I pray that you would help me and each of us as your church, as followers of you, to cling to our identity that we have in you. An identity that was not earned, but was given. And would we be thankful that you're the one who doesn't evaluate us over and over about how well we're doing. You're the one who calls us near. 
And so, um, help us, God. How can we go face the battles out there until we win the wars within us? And so, um, every person in this room right now is um, struggles with an identity crisis every day. And we define ourselves by so many things that we've determined whether or not we're doing good or bad at. So have mercy on us. Teach us to be a gospel church rooted in the truth of who you say we are. Amen.